everyone. My name is Katie Schubert. I'm president and CEO of the Society for Women's Health Research. And Femtech to me is advocating and improving women's health to change the conversation on women's health outcomes across the globe. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Today's episode is brought to you by Good Clean Love. I want to tell you a little secret about what's in my nightstand. It's Good Clean Love's Almost Naked Personal Lubricant. It's a water-based lube made of organic aloe vera designed to mimic my body's natural lubrication, all thanks to their Biomatch technology. Good Clean Love's patented Biomatch technology taps into three factors that can maintain a healthy vaginal microbiome. These are osmolarity, a healthy vaginal pH range, and lactobacilli. Good Clean Love's products are isoosmolar to help you maintain moisture and not strip it away. They have a pH range of 3.5 to 4.5, so the products match your vaginal pH range, and they contain lactic acid to help maintain a healthy vaginal microbiome. The holidays are coming up, and it's not too late to get your stocking stuffers, just like their travel size balance wash. Because needing good lube isn't just an at-home priority, if you know what I mean. So get 10% off your first order with promo code FEMTECH at goodcleanlove.com. Shop products that are made to match your vaginal microbiome at goodcleanlove.com. And again, use promo code FEMTECH for 10% off. Now back to today's episode. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Katie Schubert, President and CEO of Society for Women's Health Research, or SWHR. Katie previously worked for the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and has worked at the U.S. Capitol serving on multiple boards, including Maternal Mental Health Leadership Alliance, John E. Louis Fund for Children's Health, and Women in Government Relations. She joined the Society for Women's Health Research in 2020. The Society for Women's Health Research, again, SWHR, is a national nonprofit and thought leader dedicated to promoting research on biological sex differences in disease and improving women's health through science, policy, and education. Founded in 1990 by a group of physicians, medical researchers, and health advocates, SWHR is making women's health mainstream by addressing unmet needs and research gaps in women's health. In this interview, we discuss the three pillars of SWHR's work, the potential for an institute for women's health, and methods of increasing the participation of underrepresented populations in clinical trials. This is a great opportunity to learn more about how policy affects women's health and ways to get involved in SWHR research, whether you're a founder, physician, or patient advocate. Learn more about their work at swhr.org. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Where are you calling us from today? So I am based in Washington, D.C., and actually today I am in my Washington, D.C. office. So we're in a couple of days a week, and I work from home a couple of days a week in Virginia. 
Yes. Nice. Well, that is super awesome. I have a lot of questions actually about your organization because sometimes I do associate it so much with the government and yet it's, it's not the government. So I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about that. So the fact that you even have an office in DC is adds to my curiosity. Uh, but before we get into learning more about your organization, we'd love to know more about you. Um, you know, where are you from? What did you do as a career and how did you end up as president and CEO of this amazing organization? Yeah, so I am actually from a very rural area in Northwest Connecticut. I grew up in the house that my mother grew up in, very small town. We actually had a farm on my high school. So being in DC is uh, far away from, from there. And I don't think I ever could have imagined I would have ended up here. But I do come from a healthcare family. So my mom is a pediatric nurse by training and my father was a hospital administrator. They're both retired now. But healthcare was really something that always was, I guess, inadvertently in my blood. And But it was something that I wasn't thinking I wanted to do for the rest of my life necessarily. And I also think that being from New England, there is a sense of civic responsibility. So when I say small town, you know, there was a board of selectmen, there were town meetings, and everyone was sort of involved and engaged in local elected government in some way. So that was always really important to me, so much so that I started my career on Capitol Hill. When I went to college, I interned, I was a political science major. And so I interned for my member of Congress, Nancy Johnson, who um, was a fantastic female leader, uh, member of Congress. She was a chair of the health subcommittee for the Powerful Ways and Means Committee. So healthcare sort of just kept happening to me as a, as a policy area. And it was something that once I learned more about it, I really wanted to do something to help other people. And so falling into that through um, through my service on Capitol Hill, I actually ended up working at a small lobbying firm that was also healthcare focused. So I represented patient advocacy organizations, other nonprofits in the medical professional society space, some biotech um, on Capitol Hill, sort of from the outside. So did some lobbying and then ultimately through that work became very interested in maternal health in particular. That really became um, sort of a niche area of expertise for me. I went to work for the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working in high-risk pregnancies. I represented them on Capitol Hill. I represented them with federal agencies, advocating for additional research dollars, advocating for passage of legislation surrounding maternal mortality, which is a huge issue in this country in particular. Um, but I also was having my own babies at the time and so was seeing sort of the disparity in healthcare, both for me and friends, um, people who didn't look like me or did look like me, um, and really seeing that there were some of these access and disparity issues across the country. So for me, it became very personal as I was working on that topic area and really trying to fully understand the impact of pregnancy on the rest of our lives. So that, that really was something that for me, I've sort of turned a passion and an and interest into a career. So um, when the role of CEO at the Society for Women's Health Research came up, I thought that it was something that I always wanted to do to lead a nonprofit. It's in the women's health space, which um, was definitely an added bonus and an extra um, sort of space that I could feel like I could really get into and really broaden it out across the lifespan. 
Um, so I transitioned into this role in April of 2020. And I'm really excited about it. SWHR is such a strong organization. I had worked with them before and heard of them and knew of them. And so I'm, I'm really happy uh, that this is where I landed and that we're able to really focus on promoting research, but also improving women's health through our science policy and education work. Wow. Well, it sounds like you were totally set up for this position. Um, interested to learn just like a little bit more about the 411 on what is SWHR, Society for Women's Health Research. When was it started? What do you do? Yeah, we were founded in 1990. So we're a little over 30 years old. And we were really focused on gender health and sex differences with sort of at the top of our minds. Um, we were founded by a group of physicians, um, one of whom was Dr. Florence Hazeltine, who remains on our board. And she is um, an expert and very well known in um, the health women's health space, particularly related to um, research on biological sex differences and disease. And so she kind of looked around and was thinking, why aren't there more OBGYNs? at the National Institutes of Health? Why aren't people looking at issues that impact women or the differences between men and women in things like cardiovascular disease? Or why are more women um, at risk of autoimmune disease? There were all of these questions that no one was answering. So she and a group of folks got together. They really wanted to change the culture of medical research. And they started really small, you know, as a board only, founded the organization. And then um, over the course of a few years, they advocated in front of Congress. They got uh, passage of the National Institutes of Health Revitalization Act of 1993, which is a super long name. But what that did was it established formally the Office of Research on Women's Health at the NIH. And we really worked hard over the next, you know, 30 years to make sure that there were offices of women's health across the federal agencies. The FDA has one. There's an office of women's health uh, in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, in the CDC. I mentioned ORWH. So all of those were stood up with SWHR's advocacy, along with other folks in the women's health space. And our mission right now is to promote research on biological sex differences and disease and to improve women's health through science policy and education. So we really work to advocate, but also to educate and empower women, patients, the public, <laughs> um, you know, family members, as well as researchers and clinicians to make sure that we're all speaking with one voice as we think about the women's health space. And one of the biggest things that we have accomplished that I think we have a little bit of work more to do just in terms of diversity and equity is including women in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was something that wasn't the case back in 1990. Uh, they were actually actively excluded from clinical research. And so seeing the progress that has been made has been wonderful, but there are still areas of need, like um, making sure that there are diverse populations of women, making sure that we're tracking data related to race or ethnicity, um, sex or gender. And then the other piece of this is the inclusion of pregnant and lactating populations in clinical research as well. Um, I am learning so much. I had no idea y'all were that 
old of a company, of an organization. That is so cool. I mean, I've loved your newsletter for the four years that I've been working in Femtech, but I, so I didn't realize the history and the participation you've had in such monumental legislation, such as the Revitalization Act of 1993. Are, would you be considered a lobbying group or you're, or is it no? So we don't formally lobby. Um, We are 501c3 nonprofit, which are allowed to lobby, but we we don't consider our our activity formal lobbying. We consider it advocacy and education. So really making policymakers aware of of the issues at hand um, and providing solutions, uh, particularly when they sort of ask what could be done to make things better and to engage uh, with policymakers that way. So we do a lot with Congress, but we also do a lot with those federal agencies as well. Not everything necessarily needs to be legislated, but there's a lot of, I think, regulatory change that could happen to make sure that the, you know, these efforts are, are, are going to move forward. Totally. And the organization, is it operated through just donations and grants or is there a business model behind your organization? Great question. So we have a large um, sort of amount of support from the pharmaceutical industry and other corporate partners. Um, There is a very strong firewall between the work that we do um, and the sponsorship that comes in. And then we really work to make sure that we are engaging in individual philanthropic giving, individual donors, um, some foundation support and efforts related to more sort of public health facing work as well. So overarching initiatives like our women's health equity initiative and our women's health dashboard, but we're not a membership organization in the way that you might think of. So it is one of those things where we're looking to sort of diversify our revenue streams to ensure we can do that overarching work that really is impactful across the lifespan. Do you think that there should be an Institute for Women's Health at the NIH? <laughs> this is a question that keeps coming up. So it's interesting. If you look at the history, I think that research within the NIH and across the federal agencies needs to be elevated and prioritized. We need more money for it. I think the question surrounding an institute is one that's a little bit more complicated, just in terms of fully understanding what it is we want to get to, right? So I would never want to silo research within the NIH. I would want to make sure that something like the Office of Research on Women's Health is elevated to a point where that more collaboration, more coordination can happen, and that the institutes are all working toward the same purpose, right? We want to make sure that there's research in women's health happening across the board. So usually my answer to that is something like, I want more than just an institute at the NIH, right? Like, I would love to see a moonshot for women's health, a large-scale investment and collaborative efforts from public, from the private industry sector, from sort of across the board that really gets to the issues that we're facing. That's maybe includes research, but it also includes things like workforce and leadership and public health and um, you know, access to clinical trials within the corporate entity space. I think there's so much more that we could be doing that gets us to sort of this common goal of, again, elevating, prioritizing, and actually making this like number one priority across the spectrum. 
That's super interesting. I love that feedback. Um, and for our listeners who may be wondering, well, what's the difference between an office and an institute? At least my understanding is that we have the NIH, right? The National Institutes of Health. And there's like maybe 27 institutes, I think. Yep. And uh, they're like institutes of, you know, cancer or gastrointestinal and brain. And so these the idea is that these institutes have funding, dedicated po- like buckets of money that they can grant out. And then under these institutes are offices of which have objectives and goals, but they don't have funding that they can allocate out. Is that like, I'm sure there's many other differences, but is that kind of one of the key differences? That that is one of them. I would say this too. So SWHR is the home of the Friends of the Office of Research on Women's Health. So we pull together a coalition that each year we go to Congress, we ask for as much money as possible for the Office of Research on Women's Health. And so Um, A couple of things that have happened over the last few years that I think are really a step in the right direction and will hopefully get us to this place where we are elevating this issue even more. Um, For the first time, the Office of Research on Women's Health had its own line item funding in the appropriations bill. That had never happened before a a few years ago. So that's huge. And then the other piece is grant-making authority. And this is an issue. Um, I think it's a huge issue and challenge and barrier for the office, but also any other office within NIH. Each institute can kind of fund their own research in the spaces that they're relevant to. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, brain health and aging and, um, you know, there's a National Institute for Child Health and Human Development. Nowhere in the name of that institute does it say this. However, they fund all of the research in women's reproductive health. So endometriosis, uterine fibroids, maternal health, that's sort of where that, that all lives. It would be tremendously helpful. And in this last year's appropriations bill, there is language that gave the ORWH grant-making authority. So I think depending on how that's implemented, and that's something that we're watching really closely because we want to make sure, along with others in the community, that it's done in the right way and that the intent of giving ORWH grant-making authority is fulfilled, that there could be a great opportunity there to be able to tackle some of these issues that might not be funded in other institutes that are relevant to women's health so that we can, again, make sure we're prioritizing doing more, having this sort of cross line across the lifespan, across institutes. Um, but yeah, I think that, so the, the other sort of issue surrounding institutes, and this is maybe really policy wonky, is that you have to open up the National Institutes of Health legislative statutory code to create an institute. An act of Congress has to do that. And so depending on the political climate each year, each Congress, that can be more challenging or less challenging. Um, And so one of the things we look at really closely is, you know, is that feasible? And so, you know, looking at the makeup of Congress, where the budget process is now, because you have to try to get more money when they're actually cutting money, it's a real challenge. And so for us, you know, making sure that the conversation surrounding getting more and prioritized and sustainable funding is going to be very closely tied to the appropriations process on Capitol Hill, but also whether, you know, the the sort of grant making authority and, um, you know, gravitas, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. of an institute is something that we can achieve. Um, and, and are there other ways we might be able to get to that to the broader goal of improving women's health and making sure that that research is is looked at very closely. 
Uh, so I'm hearing red tape. There's a lot of red tape <laughs> policies and stuff. And I really appreciate you kind of breaking that down because I've had many conversations with many people from around the world saying, why isn't there an institute? And honestly, it's really great to have someone who's like, hey, here's what that would look like. Like, or here's all these things and here's the climate and there's timing that's involved. There's, you right. There's a certain potential current events that might need to happen in order to motivate voters to influence their, you know, their um, representatives to vote on this. Is that that's kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah. And again, like it's a really good question. And I think it sounds really amazing to have that. And why don't we, right? Like why, why wouldn't we have that? And I think there's a couple of sort of schools of thought in addition to sort of like, well, let's really, and of course this is where my like congressional brain comes in. Okay. In order to get here, here are the different things that we would. And then sometimes, you know, members of Congress can hold things up for no reason other, like having nothing to do with what you're suggesting. Um, they just are able to do that. Um, but you know, the, the other question that I, I do have that I think we're all kind of considering within the community and, and it's something that will be really important throughout this conversation is, making sure we're not siloing, as I mentioned before, women's health research. So like, what are we, what are the goals we want to get to, to be able to make sure that we are integrating it all back into the rest of the work? And so I think we see that with the sex as a biological variable policy, which was huge and only created in 2016, which is something that um, I think is surprising to a lot of people that there were, you know, you didn't need to consider sex differences and throughout your NIH research. So I think some of that is like, how can we make sure that we are supporting ORWH in the best way that we can to make sure that they're fulfilling their mission and growing in the way that makes sense too for them, right? Like we want to make sure they're fulfilling their strategic mission and how can we support them as advocates to get them to that point as well? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the argument, um, for the word femtech, is it good? Is it bad? Because technically it should just be health tech, right? But health tech hasn't considered females enough. And so therefore we needed our own kind of movement. And yet at the end of the day, we all kind of hope it kind of goes full circle and it becomes health tech again, where sex and gender is just standard to be considered and respected and involved. But until then, we we kind of have our own movement and, and comments. And I actually wanted to ask you about the influence of femtech in terms of of your organization being around for decades um, and the word femtech being coined in 2016. And then there's been so much momentum the last few years. How have you seen that influence maybe uh, politics, your organization, research, just any kind of observations you've had since the rise of this word femtech in this industry? So I think that a femtech is very exciting. And to your point about the name, I mean, I think at the end of the day, kind of call it whatever you yeah. like, make sure that you get right the access to the things that we need, right? Yeah. So um, I think that's really one really important thing. The other thing I would say is I think it actually has provided this conversation surrounding it has provided um, a broader opportunity to have a conversation surrounding women's health. So in order to continue to push the needle forward in women's health, I think that sort of this femtech movement, if you will, has really highlighted a lot of these issues for new audiences. Mm -hmm. I think we take for granted this idea that whatever medication or medical device or whatever, it has been either tested in someone like us or that it's been considered that there may be differences. And that's just not true. And so what I think the sort of growth or rise of femtech has done is really put it 
out in front. And it also has started to destigmatize some of this, these conversations. So I think Femtech is taking on things that people weren't talking about necessarily before as openly, like menopause. Everybody wants to talk about menopause now. It's amazing because people were not talking about it before. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we were talking about things like endometriosis or uterine fibroids. Um, and I think those are all things that I think maybe people stigmatized as sort of an icky or women's issue that you shouldn't really talk about publicly. And I think to that, we'd sort of say, well, why not? And we're super happy to have more partners in this space so that we can continue to push this argument that these are, this is, this is about all health. And to your point, you know, SWHR's mission is to make women's health mainstream, which means we want to put ourselves out of business, right? Like there shouldn't even be anything that distinguishes between you just want to make sure that you're addressing all sides, right? And mm-hmm. and, move in, and really helping to lift up and improve outcomes for everyone. And if you invest in women's health, you will do that for everyone. Do you think that the involvement of tech and investment and unicorns and, you know, innovation, those kind of buzzy words are helping the conversation in the capital of DC to like get people on board versus it just being the right thing to do or the good thing to do or important thing to do. Instead, it's like, this is economic potential with huge money potential. Do you see that as a a lever that's kind of moving that conversation? I think that the, the conversation surrounding the economic need or the economic benefit and productivity benefit has been huge because anytime you want to argue, particularly in in DC, where you know you have a variety of um, you know folks across the political spectrum, you want to make sure that you're really getting to where their where their heads are, where they're thinking about it. And so, the business case for investing in women's health, which the Women's Health Access Matters um, reports have done such a fantastic job of making the case for investment. I think is really powerful because it's an it's an argument that has been around, but I think if we put it front and center with particular audiences, it will make more headway because it just makes sense. Like it's a no brainer. Why would you not invest, you know, twenty six million dollars and get forty or four hundred thousand, you know, years of productivity out of someone? I mean, these, this just seems like it's something that people would want to invest in, and I also think it's shifting. Um, a little bit more this broader conversation surrounding what women's health is. So, you know, traditionally, I think people think of it as anything having to do with a uterus. And while that is true, it's so much more than that. So really thinking about not just the lifespan approach, but the interaction of chronic conditions, the impact on how heart disease might uh, be different for men versus women, uh, this issue of autoimmune disease or migraine. I mean, there's so many things that are women's health that you wouldn't traditionally think of it as that. And that's not political at all. It's just raising awareness and making sure that we're fully telling this story. So I think it's it's definitely been helpful just in terms of where the conversation is headed and how we're thinking about it. Cool. Well, go femtech. I always feel a little funny asking about that word femtech and like our podcast is called Femtech Focus. I'm like, feel free to, you can say you don't like it. (laughs) But um, I want to jump into the three main pillars of your organization, policy, science, and education. Uh, Can you first tell us why those are the three pillars? Yeah, I think with all of the work that we see that needs to be done, these are the ways that we can get to it. And I think we'd start maybe with science. That's really the foundation of everything that we do. We want to make sure that we're using the evidence base or 
a lack thereof to make the point that change needs to be made. So we do a lot of calling out um, gaps in research, gaps in knowledge of which we know there are many, many of them in women's health and really talking about why you need to look at some of these scientific questions or to raise awareness on where we where we think the science is or what the state of the science is. Can you is. give us an example of a recent gap you've identified? Yeah. So when I, I, I know I keep talking about endometriosis and uterine fibroids, but we've obviously seen a huge gap in terms of um, federal investment in endometriosis. If you look at um, the data behind uh, federal investment on something like endometriosis versus diabetes, for example. Um, these are two conditions that are both chronic and we believe that they impact about the same proportion of women. So we think that the proportion of women who have endometriosis is about the same as the proportion of women who have diabetes. If you look at the federal investment for diabetes, it's in the billions of dollars range. They have their own institute. Um, if you look at endometriosis, I think we're up to $22 million of NIH funding for endometriosis. So really thinking about, okay, well, why is this? And that's not to say we shouldn't continue to invest in diabetes. We're not pitting one thing against the other. It's just more of an equity issue, right? And thinking about if it's the same proportion, why aren't we investing in this? And I think a lot of this is, it's really hard to diagnose. Um, women aren't talking about it. If there's not a, a way to really cure it. And, you know, there's a lot of invasive surgery to actually even be able to prove how much endometriosis you have. So there's a lot of barriers there. Um, but I think that's one huge gap just in terms of, of what we're seeing. We see similar um, similar numbers in terms of, of uterine fibroids. If you look at the maternal health space, I mean, we have abysmal maternal death rates in this country. And, you know, if you're a Black woman, you're three times as more likely to die as a result of a pregnancy complication than a white woman. Um, we see similar stats for um, Native American women as well. Um, and so really thinking about why is this and and what does this look like is going to be important. So we did see that. Um, we do see sort of disproportionate impact in terms of Alzheimer's disease on women. So not only are we at greater risk as women for getting Alzheimer's, we're also responsible for most of the caregiving related to Alzheimer's. So that's like a double whammy right there in terms of the, the data that we're seeing. Um, and then we're about to embark on... Um, maybe I'd call it reinvigorating. We had a heart health network uh, many years ago. And so we're coming back into the space where we're really looking at some policy differences, but we're going to start with that level setting on the science side and really seeing what is the state of the science. I think we know the differences exist between men and women, um, but, and that, and, the awareness has been great there, but really sort of like, what is it more that we need to do in terms of the research, in terms of the evidence base to be able to move the needle forward? There? Yeah, there's like a part of women's health that's just shocking facts. And that's what I could do all day is just talk about shocking facts. But then there's a point where you're like, OK, now what are we going to do, though? Like, we've been shocked. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Um, my understanding is that you have some publicly available resources and under your science pillar. Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, so we have a variety of resources uh, in each of our science programs. And sometimes that looks like a peer-reviewed paper. So I mentioned Alzheimer's disease and endometriosis. We have a couple of peer-reviewed papers on that, as well as women's eye health. Um, those are all related to sort of the convenings that we have hosted on that and calling out those research gaps. We also navigated into patient toolkit and patient engagement a lot over the last five years. So 
in the migraine space, which is where we sort of started with this patient toolkit, we have two toolkits available, one on sort of background on migraine 101. And then the second one is living well with migraine. We have an endometriosis and a uterine fibroids toolkit. Um, We have um, a menopause toolkit. And actually, I'm super excited about the sort of next iteration of our menopause work because we're working on a women in the workplace initiative related to menopause and how to have those conversations with employers and what does that look like. So um, talk about you know, tying it back to productivity and the economy, I think that's going to be really huge. I think there's larger application for other areas as well, like in the autoimmune space, um, other conditions that might pop up that cause issues during um, the workday that I think we can probably translate um, from the menopause work into some of these other works. So we have a narcolepsy toolkit, which is super interesting. There's not a lot of sex differences in narcolepsy, but when you think about the caregiving aspect and um, the pregnancy space, those might, uh, th- there are differences there, obviously, that we want to look at. So a lot of different resources at swhr.org. I tend to forget some of them because we have so many of them. <laughs> and a lot of fact sheets too, not just the full um, toolkits. You know, we have fact sheets that are um, facing for consumers, but we also do uh, fact sheets for policymakers that we bring um, to to those folks as well to educate, bring b- greater awareness to a lot of these conditions. So cool. I am a huge fan of your webinars. I just go ahead and register for all of them, by the way. Like I'm available or not, I just register because they're so good. And I went to the narcolepsy one and I was like, narcolepsy, what does that have to do with women's health? And there was like that patient advocate who was sharing her story. And I was like, oh, y'all, I just learned so much much about narcolepsy. I had no idea. So you really do bring some really great educational content that is sometimes I just have it on while I'm still doing emails and something, but I'm, I'm picking up info. So you, you really do do great work there. Thank you for that. Yeah. So do you want to talk about uh, policy or education pillar next? Uh, Well, so it's interesting. Uh, Let's go on to policy because I think all of our science drives our policy and it drives education too. But I think on the policy side of things, Again, really learning from those interdisciplinary, you know, roundtable members that we host, pulling together all of these folks to hear where are the barriers, what's the change that we can make, and engaging with, I'll say this, we're so broad, right? We're women's health broadly. So when we look at a a particular condition or a disease state or a life stage, we want to make sure we're convening the experts. And so we do a lot of work closely with other organizations that might be in the patient advocacy space for a particular disease or condition or maybe the medical professional society. So we pull them all together. Um, We sort of do a landscape analysis to see what are the policy areas that they're engaged in? How can we help amplify their voices? So there have been there's a lot of work in coalition that we do. Um, There's also a lot of work in terms of materials. We have several policy agendas. So we have like a broad overarching policy agenda that looks at issues like access to coverage and care broadly, um, access to clinical trials and inclusion in clinical trials broadly, the research workforce, um, and and the need for additional research dollars just broadly to women's health. But we also have a specific bone health policy agenda, an autoimmune agenda, um, an Alzheimer's disease agenda, all in women's health that we try to make sure that we're um, advocating for and, again, amplifying others' voices. So I think that's exciting. Um, we also administer the Coalition to Advance Maternal Therapeutics, which 
um, is something that I have been working on for 10 years now. I started this coalition uh, back when I was, it was like three jobs ago, <laughs> but I was representing the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. And we sort of realized through conversations that we don't know necessarily what's safe or effective for pregnant people or lactating people in terms of medications. And if you have a chronic condition that needs to be managed during that time, or you have something that might arise as a result of a pregnancy, we're sort of just going with what we think we know to be true. So we worked really hard to pull together a coalition of other organizations to advocate for better inclusion in clinical trials. We created a, um, through legislative work, created a, a task force called PregLAC, which is really looking at identifying ways to be more inclusive, uh, model um, how we can make sure that these populations are being addressed. So that's something that's really exciting to me and personal. I sort of used to think of this as like the third rail of women's health research that nobody wanted to touch uh, because of its history with and because it's complicated and this is a complex population, but it is something we're seeing policy movement on. And so we're working with congressional champions and the NIH to make sure that there's greater implementation of of this type of work. The other thing that um, we got to do just a few weeks ago is we went to Capitol Hill and we were uh, participating in a press conference for the reintroduction of the Stephanie Tubbs-Jones Uterine Fibroid Research and Education Act, which is like another really long name. <laughs> but mm-hmm. basically this bill has been introduced um, for many years, you know, almost 20 years now, um, which is a very long time, but I do think that's typical of legislation um, within Congress. So um, we went to celebrate the reintroduction to advocate for Congress to pass this legislation to really raise awareness on uterine fibroids, um, to include more research dollars, and then to provide more education. So we do a lot of work specific to the sort of programming that we have within our science programs. But we also have these broader overarching initiatives, really bringing the women's health lens to whether they're legislative proposals or rulemaking within the federal agencies, which is a whole other area of policy engagement. But we do a lot of comment letters. All of those are also available on our website. Um, you just have to sort of go go over to our policy tab and you can see them. But um, this is all really important work because it's taking what we know or don't know in the science space and hopefully making change in particular areas that we would like to see movement on. I was wondering, you mentioned you have all these like verticals for these different goals with bone health or brain health. And um, if we have listeners who are really passionate or maybe even working in one of these areas, could they potentially reach out to you, be helpful to you, participate in some of this? Yeah, we are always looking for additional stakeholders to engage with. So you can, you know, either pop online and look for the right person. All of our staff is listed there. You know, if you have a particular area of expertise, if you're a researcher or clinician or, you know, you have started, you have a startup that you have in a particular area, we are always looking to engage. So definitely go and check that out. And, you know, you can always email me. It's just Catherine at SWHR.org or any member of our staff. Um, and usually we do is have a conversation, see where the interests are. And then, um, you know, if we have an active program in that, we can um, help to pop them in or keep you in mind for future programming. The other area is really where are there areas of need that our voice can best be used for. And so that's always helpful to hear feedback from folks on as well. 
And I also just kind of am personally curious if there's any really cool, innovative strategies that are being proposed for how to safely incorporate pregnant and lactating women in clinical trials, because I don't know the answer, right? Like there's, yes, it's important. Also, how are we going to do that safely? Do you, Is there some really cool techniques people are coming up with? So there's, I don't know if I would call them cool. I wish it were more innovative (laughs) because I do think when we talk about innovation in women's health, there's also, there's some really cool things happening. Also, sometimes that's just leveling ourselves up to where, where true innovation is really happening, right? We're so far behind, but I do think there is a way to do this. There, There is research that has been happening for years that safely incorporates these populations and that can look, there's been lots of conversations, this Preglac task force that I mentioned, which also has a really long name. It's uh, the task force specific to pregnant to research on pregnant women and lactating women. And that's why we call it Preglac because it's so long. Um, but they were a collection of federal agency representatives of industry, of patient advocates who met over the course of a couple of years. And they came up with 15 recommendations on how we could do this and sort of who owned what space. Like, how are we doing this in the federal government? How is industry going to do this? How are they already doing it that we can then sort of share and raise awareness of? How do we engage the public in this space? Because, I mean, if if it were me and I were pregnant, I don't know that I would want to participate yeah. in a clinical trial, right? And so we need to make sure that there's a full understanding of this. So those recommendations, they're out there. The coalition that I mentioned is working actively to track and push for greater implementation and then actually through some of the other work that we've done, that task force is going to have a specific implementation working group. And um, I'm super excited about that because I think that's really where the rubber meets the road on this because we automatically think, oh, this is not for them. And we saw this during COVID, right? Pregnant Mm -hmm. people needed COVID vaccines. They were not included in the clinical trials at the beginning. They could have been, but we were moving so quickly. At that time, we didn't know or we didn't think, I guess, that the the risk was any greater for mom or baby. And we know that now to not be true. But if someone had just thought, we need to look into this and we need to make sure that we're being inclusive, we would be in a very different place because there was so much confusion surrounding whether or not you should get the vaccine while you're pregnant. I think a lot of clinicians were making, depending on who you talk to, you'd get a different answer. And so to be able to make sure that we're getting the data that we need to inform clinical care is going to be really critical. So there's lots of sort of implementation recommendations on how to do that. I think we're sort of at the stage where we want to make sure that we are um, getting the word out and also just sharing techniques and best practices and all of that, because it, it is being done. It's just not as well known as it probably should or could be. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And our last pillar is education. Why don't you tell us about what you're doing there? Yeah, so our big sort of goal within our education pillar is driving the national conversation surrounding women's health and women's health research. And we really want to make sure that we are seen as a trusted source of information for a variety of audiences. So we want to really raise awareness of the disparities and the unmet needs within women's health. Um, We want to support through our educational efforts, our science programming and our policy programming. So both of those kind of feed into that final pillar. 
I think some exciting things that we've done. Um, and again, when I talk about, oh, innovation is leveling up, you know, in 2022, we just got an Instagram account. <laughs> <laughs> leveling up. Right, right. Um, so I'm sure that'll be, you know, uh, there will be something else um, that will need to be in. But th- I think that's been really exciting for us because that gets us in front of the audience and interacting with people more directly, which we didn't have before. So all of that is sort of housed within our um, our communications department, our education and awareness department. So we, you know, have hosted live conversations. We've dabbled a little bit in Instagram live in addition to those webinars that we've done. Um, We use that for all of our awareness months. So we tend to tie um, any uh, toolkits or fact sheets back to the awareness months that we see so that we can leverage those. We also launched, I mentioned the Women's Health Equity Initiative, but we launched that back in early 2022. And this is a broad campaign that highlights data on women's health in the U.S. And we're really looking to provide solutions to improve health equity, but also highlight what we're seeing in this space. So we started with four conditions, um, our sort of hub of information on the SWHR website, has fact sheets sort of highlighting these disparities, but also videos that tell a patient's story or a caregiver's story, or we're working on one on uterine health right now that's going to feature a researcher. So that's another perspective that contributes to this sort of health equity journey. But really looking at, are we seeing disparities within the population of women amongst them, or are there differences between, you know, men and women, or, you know, are these differences gender-based, are they sex-based, and really sort of highlighting that, and then coming up with what this looks like overarching. So a lot of our education efforts are raising awareness and interacting with different audiences, and again, to make sure that we're working to empower people to take charge of their health care and be well-informed about it. Um, one of the greatest pieces of feedback we got within our lupus toolkit, which is a toolkit I did not mention earlier <laughs> that we have, is really looking at for someone who maybe thinks that they might have lupus or were recently diagnosed, and there's a tracker, a symptoms tracker in there. And it seems like that would be an easy thing to think of, but when you're faced with a potential diagnosis of lupus, you might not know or think that some of these symptoms are interrelated. And when you can put them all together and bring them to your clinician, it might present a bigger, better picture of what you're dealing with. And so a lot of that sort of education work is related to raising awareness in particular areas and making sure that, you know, you mentioned women feeling dismissed. I know there's a huge national conversation right now about medical gaslighting. A lot of it is really aimed at addressing these issues so that Unfortunately, the burden right now is on the patient to do, to bring these issues to their clinician, but we want to sort of sandwich this, right? So that you are empowered and informed and well-educated, but so is your clinician so that they know sort of what to look out for. Ah, you such good work. I, kn- I mean, I know this. I know this. Well, why don't you tell our listeners what events you have some coming up and what's your vision for the future of uh, uh, SWHR? Yeah. So we're hosting a menopause in the workplace webinar on August 29th that will be on Zoom. So um, we're featuring the Black Girls Guide to Surviving Menopause podcast and the Cleveland Clinic Canada. So that's going to be a really great conversation um, on continuing some of this menopause work that we're doing. It's free. It's online, open to everyone. And as you mentioned, you can register, even if you can't make it, we'll send you the recording. So um, definitely (laughs) would love to see everyone there. Um, We're working also on hosting a bone health congressional briefing and a heart health congressional 
briefing. Those dates are still be uh, to be determined, but we're looking at September for those. Um, those are also should be online and, and available to the public. So even though we call it a congressional briefing and we're, our audience is looking at um, you know, members of Congress and their staff, it's important to have members of the public there too, because you can learn more about what to advocate for and how you can engage. And I would say also sign up for our newsletter and our, look at our calendar because we have new things coming out all the time. Um, and so I'm really excited about all of that as we're sort of approaching the end of this year. But I also think when we think about the future of SWHR, um, I'm really excited about continuing to really convene these groups of folks, amplify others' voices in this space, and engage in a holistic way to really make women's health mainstream. So there's a responsibility for all of us to do that, right? To think about the clinical trials barriers that we're seeing, to look at those gaps in knowledge and science, increase awareness about this, and really keep that drum beating so that we can truly make an impact. So every day, we're just going to continue to to do that um, we're always looking for new partners to be able to do that and really make the case that, you know, we're not a niche market. This is 51% of the population and it's it's not special. I mean, I always like to think we're special anyway, but we're not really special, right? And that we're, we're this is this is a mainstream issue. It's not political. And it's it, this is a, a real thing that's not um, you know, sort of a special case that we need to invest in. This there's there's a real market for women's health and, and investment there. Katie, you are amazing. I love your organization. I'm so glad to have personally met you today and learn more about the intricate work that you're doing because I'm a newsletter subscriber and an event attender, and I will continue to do so. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my interview with Katie Schubert, President and CEO of the Society for Women's Health Research. Learn more and get involved at swhr.org. Okay, fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.